Hello and welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. My friend Bill Owen, known as the King of Trivia, is a radio and TV announcer with an incredible career spanning six decades. Everything from cowboy entertainer Marshall Bill to a staffer at legendary ABC for 30 years, working with Howard Cosell, working as a disc jockey on WABC, doing sports on Good Morning America, heard on countless national radio and TV campaigns as a voiceover artist extraordinaire. And he even resurrected on radio the make-believe ballroom made famous on WNEW in New York. Bill has written many books, including Radio's Golden Age, which became the big broadcast 1920 to 1950 in a later edition. In retirement, Bill has written several books, the Over 60 Trivia Book, All Those Things My Teacher Never Told Me, the only top 10 lists worth arguing about, and we're going to be talking today about his newest called Do You Remember? The Visual History of Early Radio and TV. So let's take you back to yesteryear and talk with a man who's been there, done that, and is helping to bring those memories back in a fresh, new way. Travel back to yesteryear with the man who knows about it all. He's got a great memory, but he's also a wonderful writer and storyteller. His name is Bill Owen. And Bill, it's wonderful to welcome you back to the airwaves, or at least the podcast waves. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really well, Jordan. It's so nice to resume our friendship. And uh, I've had such great interviews. Uh, conversations with you in the past, so let's see what we can do. All time. right. Likewise, sir. It's a delight. And the reason that we connected is you've got another project, and it's a great new book called Do You Remember the Visual History of Early Radio and TV? And I don't want to take it on myself to describe it. It's a work of art. Tell me uh, how the book is laid out for people. They can use their imagination, I know. Well, here's what happened. Several years ago, uh, somebody who was familiar with my work uh, on television, the New Eyes Anderson trivia. Was he, he was a, a cartoonist for uh, comic books and so on at his own newspaper strip. And he called me and said, would you like to go in you know, a project together where you write and I will uh, illustrate uh, old-time things, radio, television, comic strips, etc." And it sounded like a good idea to me. So I had the easy part. I would just send him some stick figures and and write the text, and he would fill in. He was a marvelous artist. And uh, so it it was uh, submitted to Grit Magazine, I had a little newspaper-type magazine. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we'll run it as a test. We'll see if you like it, see if the audience likes it. So they ran it a few times, and people overwhelmingly said, wow, what great nostalgia. So that ran for several years. Mm-hmm. And uh, not too long ago, I got the idea, maybe I should just put a collection of those together in a book. And it turned out very well, as you probably saw. It, uh, it is delightful. First of all, the, the caricatures are very realistic. I'm looking at, say, Errol Flynn, Bob Hope. I mean, these people come alive on the page, and they're all hand-drawn. And oh, yeah. and your text is terrific, too. So what were the parameters here? I mean, the visual history of early radio and TV had a lot to play with, didn't you? Yeah, well, I had, not everyone is in here, so it just goes on and on because it ran for so many years. You know, subconsciously, I think I've always had a desire uh, for, for many, many years to make sure that the history of radio is not forgotten. It was a brief—we thought it would last forever when we were growing up listening to it, but it was kind of a brief—talking uh, about the, the, the period in which it was uh, at its zenith as far as having programming. Radio is totally different, as you know, today. But in those days, you had constant programming, night and day, 24 hours a day, Always something of, of reasonably high quality. Even even the soap operas are so well done. Any time of day and block programming. Mm-hmm. The little kiddies in the mid afternoon and the bigger kids home from school. 
the adventure shows and the comedy and music at night. And so many people are not really aware of what it was. And I just, I just feel it should be preserved. There, there's so much to remember. So much of the history could be forgotten. One thing I came across recently was about the announcers. The early announcers didn't give their names like uh, Don Wilson or, or Ken Carpenter or Harlow Wilcox and so on. They gave themselves a coded name. It was uh, well, Tommy Cowan, one of the first announcers of the old days that I interviewed back in the 60s when I was first getting interested in this project. Was He called himself ACN. It was kind of mysterious. You know, this is ACN speaking. A for announcer, C for his name, Cowan, N for Newark, where he was broadcasting. And I just thought that was a – Milton Cross was among the others who had that kind of a code. Hmm. And Thomas uh, Cowan said something to me that has lasted forever, ever since he uttered it. He said, Bill, there was an explosion of sound when radio came Hmm. out. Think of that. Think of that. There was only the the rattle of uh, Model T's and occasional train whistle in the distance. But the world was – a pretty silent place in those days. And yeah. all of a sudden, sound exploded. Isn't that a descriptive thought? It's terrific. And w- when you l- think about the fact that people would sit around a piece of furniture that held the radio, uh, antiques now, but they would sit around and all they were doing was using the old imagination because the writing and performances were so vivid and came alive. I mean, it really speaks to a different era when people didn't have all the stuff thrust in front of them. I mean, everything is there now in plain view. In the old days, you had to use your mind. The theater of the mind. I think it was very healthy for people to, to utilize their mind. You mentioned the writing a couple of instances where I think you could almost call it literature. For example, Fred Foy, the announcer on, on The Lone Ranger, uh, would go through this uh, with his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. Nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Hmm. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. That's not just copy that's turned out by a hack writer. That is beautiful. Yeah. Fred was, by the way, a local resident here in Massachusetts. I had the great honor of meeting him on a couple of occasions. And what a stately, wonderful man. And and he was so humble when I met him. (laughs) Here's the great Fred Foy. But you're right. That writing was just eloquent and becomes part of the cultural fabric. Yeah, I remember Fred told me one time, I said, when I asked him, I said, did you have any idea that 50, 60 years later, people would be repeating this. He said, no, he just went in and it was a job and went on to the next job. But there's here's another example, if I may. You remember a program called Grand Central Station? Actually, I don't. I'd love to know more about well, it. You may be too young to remember it, but uh, it started way back in the, in the 30s. But listen to this, talking about literature. The, a train is pulling into the station. As a bullet seeks its target, shining rails in every part of our great country are aimed at Grand Central Station, heart of the nation's greatest city, drawn by the magnetic force of a fantastic metropolis. Day and night, great trains rush toward the Hudson River, sweep down its eastern bank for 140 miles, flash briefly by the long red row of tenement houses south of 125th Street, drive with a roar into the two-and-a-half-mile tunnel, which burrows beneath the glitter and swank of Park Avenue, and then and we hear the escaping steam, and then Grand Central Station, crossroad of mm. a million private lives. The escaping steam is kind of interesting because they were all electric at that time, but <laughs> nope, nobody's quarrel about that. It's like uh, like first nighter 
which was a series of dramas each week would come on and and the bellboy or or the usher would say smoking in the outer lobby only please and then they would come on and he would say uh, uh, from a little theater off Times Square mm. well Jordan it was a little more than off Times Square it came from Chicago but again <laughs> who cares <laughs> exactly by the way can I just interject you can still get it done i was just captivated by your announcing style bill you're an old pro and man you haven't lost you haven't lost anything off your fastball let me ask you to comment on some of the real life characters who used radio effectively i'll just mention a few one is eleanor roosevelt you talk about her and then uh, the mayor of new york laguardia let's talk about eleanor roosevelt she used radio as her husband did quite effectively yeah he of course is famous for his fireside chats which were quite often and very, very effective, as you say. Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, she also had a column, I think it was called My Day, and uh, that was very effective. But she she was wonderful. I have a letter in my little uh, locker here uh, from her. I wrote her a letter when I was a disc jockey in Cincinnati, and I said, I was curious whether it was true or not, Mrs. Roosevelt, that your husband's favorite song was Home on the Range. I'd always heard that, but Maybe that's just uh, apocryphal. She wrote me a personal letter back and said, yes, uh, it was his favorite song, but he did weary of it. That was her phrase. Hmm. He did weary of it because they played it every time he made an appearance. Wow. That's that's the kind of thing you treasure, obviously. It's, uh, it's a piece of history. And talk about LaGuardia because – uh, Fiorello, the musical, was based on him and a very colorful character who used radio effectively. Yeah, well, he's famous, of course, for the uh, reading the comic strips during the newspaper strike in New York. And uh, I remember on one occasion, he said something about re- while reading Dick Tracy. Look at those policemen. Look what good shape they're in. He says, I think some of our New York City policemen should emulate Dick Tracy's cops and and get in better shape. So he, he was right to the point. He was famous for reading Little Orphan mm-hmm. Annie, which Little Orphan Annie is an interesting uh, entity unto itself because it was basically a political uh, strip. It was very, very conservative, right-wing, and preaching the, the wonderful things about capitalism. And uh, nobody, I don't think anybody, got the point of it. It was just turned out to be a great adventure strip. So Interesting. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you, Bill, to, to go a bit deeper into some of these and talk about the influences. I didn't know that about Orphan Annie. Was there any other sort of popular show that had uh, people trying to make a, a more delicate point through the shows? I mean, I, I don't uh, know of one offhand, but you probably know of many examples. Well, uh, of course, there was Father Coughlin, which was a very political program. Oh, yes. it, it was not just religion. <laughs> It's funny, I mentioned that on a program oh, about 10, 12 years ago, I was on the air, and I said that people to this day are still very sensitive about it. They said, uh, Mr. Owen, I know you'd have, you don't have a bigoted bone in your body, but to bring up the name of Father Coffin is very disturbing. Right. <laughs> he was anti-Semitic, and uh, well, I had a lot of issues, that, uh, but he was quite popular for many years. Oh, he was considered the leading uh, radio program in America. Mm. Uh, Father Coughlin came out of uh, uh, Michigan. So, uh, so many other wonderful aspects of, of radio need to be remembered. The, the great comedians. Now, I don't know how you feel about comedy today, but it's become a little more abrasive to me and very political oriented. But in those days, 
it was sheer wit. Like Fred Allen, he's been virtually forgotten. What, what a what a wit he was, and he came out with things like uh, he always spoke with his uh, with a nasal tone. So I'm going to put my finger on my oh. nose to try to emulate him. <laughs> okay, Fred Allen, you can take all the sincerity of Hollywood, put it in a flea's navel. And have room left over for three caraway seeds and an agent's heart. <laughs> there is so much in that to think about in those yeah. few little words. Well, he and was then, he was as you mentioned just for a second. He was the kind of guy that I was referring to who was able to sort of attack establishment in in his own way with these characters and his own character get away with it. And Orson Welles, of course, we all know about his relationship to radio, but Fred Allen did it with humor, as did Will Rogers. I mean, these are just a few examples that come to mind. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Fred Allen, what a genius. W.C. Fields had another approach, too. I remember uh, one time W.C. Fields said, uh, yes, I always keep a fifth of whiskey handy in case I'm bitten by a rattlesnake. Which I also keep handy. <laughs> I mean, that kind of, or, or one of my favorites, my wife's favorite, always was Jimmy Durante. And in can do, Jimmy would say, uh, "I'm ready for Broadway, but is Broadway ready for me?" And my favorite was, uh, "I haven't slept for days and days." It's a good thing I sleep at night. Right. <laughs> well, where do you get that kind of humor today? It's very, very, uh, shall we say, safe and fun and family oriented, but it's also clever. And they were doing it. Most of them were doing it in front of a live audience anyway. So the laughter you hear on these old radio shows is real. Yeah, that started out with Eddie Cantor. He was he came out of vaudeville, like most of the early comedians, and he was used to an audience. And he they put him in a studio and he did his routine. He said, "I'm not comfortable doing there. I've got to start bringing people in." to get a reaction. He fed on those reactions. And uh, that's what started the studio audience. I and mean, they would usually have about 200 people in the studio audience and reacting. And, and they, they took part in it. For example, on uh, Truth or Consequences, they always wanted the program to start with laughter. First thing you heard was, uh, ah, ha, 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 to the mm. audience. What they did to invoke, they didn't just tell the audience, start laughing. That would be hard to do. They would have somebody up there do something crazy like, they used to have a serviceman would come up and, and put on ladies' clothing just before, and they'd be pulling up on the corsets and all that. And the audience would be hysterical. And uh, Alan Young's bit, I saw him do his show one time. He simply dropped his uh, slacks, and there was a polka dot underwear, and that, that got the audience that going. That gets a laugh every time, Bill, let's face it. We're talking with Bill Owen. His latest, Do You Remember, the visual history of early radio and TV. We'll, we'll get to TV in a minute, but I'm having too much fun with radio. I, I love the recounts of people like Walter Winchell. In today's day, uh, there are websites that break news, and everyone knows immediately around the world. But in the old days of radio, there were people like Walter Winchell that everybody decided to turn to at one point because he was the man. He had the, the latest scoop. But people like that had a lot of power in that era, didn't they, Bill? Oh, absolutely. Between him and Luella Parsons in Hollywood, and she followed him on Sunday nights, uh, they had tremendous influence on audiences around the world. And another name, now Walter Winchell's name is still extant, still remembered well. But one name that's been virtually forgotten except by those who actually heard him was Gabriel Heater. Now, yeah. I didn't dare talk at home when Gabriel Heater came on. My father said, wait, Gabriel Heater is on. We had to hear every syllable that he said. And he was very encouraging because in the early stages of World War II, we were frankly losing the war in both theaters, Japanese and, and against the Germans. And he was so encouraging. And he would find little bits of encouragement. And he would often start his newscast with, ah, there's good news tonight. 
another kind of a, a watchword, Gabriel Heater. But uh, if mm-hmm. you ask young people today, what? Who's that? They think it's some kind of device that you warm your house with. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Now, let's talk a little bit about the transition from radio to TV. And many of these stars, like Jack Benny is a great example, made that transition, but others didn't. <laughs> the most famous one has to be William Conrad as Matt Dillon on he radio. He, yeah, he yeah. didn't get the part. We all know James Arness became Matt Dillon. But that happened, I would imagine, in, in a few cases where people on radio just didn't make the transition. Yeah, I guess it's obvious why Charlie McCarthy, who was the, probably the biggest star of all on radio, didn't make it. It just it just didn't work to have a ventriloquist sitting there with a dummy. But uh, oh, there were so many who, who did fail. Fibber McGee and Molly, another classic mm. instance. They tried it. It just didn't work. Amos and Andy didn't work for obvious social reasons, and there were just a number of programs. Why one would make it and why one wouldn't be kind of rather subjective. Jack Benny, of course, uh, was noted for being a stingy character, which was totally the opposite of him in real life. He was very generous with his cast and so on. And, of course, he's famous for the, uh, uh, I'm thinking it over, you know what I'm talking uh, about? The, the, the stick-up routine, your money or your yeah. life, of course. Yeah. yeah. An interesting time when television was coming in. Did they really think that radio as as a medium was dead? Did some people actually predict that? Well, my father-in-law, for example, said, I'm going to sell my radio. I won't need it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, nobody really knew what the future held. I think they were a little bit pessimistic. And one of the first things that happened uh, during that transition was Bing Crosby became the first radio star to start recording his programs, and that took away the liveliness of it. And that was like a, a straw in the wind. And uh, here television comes along, and, and all these wonderful shows are fading bit by bit, just a handful that survived, yeah. like Whistler and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. But I remember that era so well in the 40s. I was living mm-hmm. in California then. How crowds would gather around the department store windows. They would look at test patterns mm. and stand mesmerized mm. and then it'd be wrestling or things like that but the quality of the programs of course was nothing they had old western scenes and so on but it, it was kind of a, a nebulous era it's hard to see what was going to happen but we have seen it and ironically in my opinion the greatest years were shortly after it began uh, the greatest programs and uh, now is i think it's become uh, a little common and trite I mean, there's so many options on television, and now uh, I'm thrilled to announce that you're on a podcast with me, and this has been a rebirth of audio. People who don't know anything about radio saying, oh, I love my podcast. Well, you're listening to audio, which is very much what radio has been and continues to be. Let me just ask you to take us into the book. We'll just share a couple of additional stories, because there are thousands of them, it seems. Some of your favorite little tidbits here, because they're all about memories. Indulge yourself. The Green Hornet made the transition very well from uh, radio to television. That was one of three shows that came out of WXYZ in Detroit. Uh, most shows, most shows, yeah. of course, came from Hollywood or New York, but there were a few from Cincinnati and Chicago, a lot of kiddie shows out of, out of Chicago, like Jack Armstrong. But from w- WXYZ, the Lone Ranger, the Green Hornet, and Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and they would use the same cast that made sense. Uh, nobody knew the difference, the voices and so on. And one of the transitional voices, I'm, getting, I'm sidelining myself here, sidetracking myself, 
But one of the transitional voices was when the Lone Ranger, the real Lone Ranger, Earl Grazer, was killed in an auto accident in the 30s, and they didn't want a sudden change of voice, so they very cleverly arranged the script that uh, the Lone Ranger was badly wounded, and Tonto took over the script for several weeks Uh. until they could break in the new voice, Brace Beamer, who slowly came back, and I'm feeling better. And the audiences were not at all even aware of it. But one of the great stories about Sergeant Preston you asked about was, uh, if you picture the scene, this man is lying in the Arctic tundra, and he's been tied to a couple of stakes by the villains. He left to die. And he had earlier in his life rescued a she-wolf, and he remembered helping that. Now, Now the scene is being narrated, and he says, I looked up and I saw a herd of wolves coming toward me, hungry wolves. I looked up and I saw those hair, that hair, those fangs, those eyes. That's that's my wolf. It was very dramatic. Of course, the wolf rescued the man. Happy ending. Happy ending for the broadcast out of WXYZ, but not a happy ending for the West Coast version. They always had something for the West Coast three hours later, time delay. So... The actor is narrating and he says, I looked up, those eyes, that hair, those fangs, that's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it broke up the cast. Yeah. Red Boy said they broke it up to such an extent nobody could continue. They were on the floor rolling, and they had to finish that broadcast with the organ music. They always had an organ standing by. <laughs> well, one well, of the great moments. One thing's for sure, and nothing's changed. I've been in the business 40 years myself. Nothing has changed. Every once in a while, there's a moment on live radio where you lose it, or people around you lose it. The greatest sense of elation when people start to laugh and cannot stop laughing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's that's embarrassing, right. I, but I it's... never appreciated it when people did it to me. I, I would laugh to hear others, but I never would appreciate if somebody would light my script on oh, the air and famous. start burning. Yeah. Uh, Frank Singheiser. I'm reminded, Frank Singheiser was a distinguished newscaster on NBC and then later on Mutual. He prided himself on reading his copy cold. And they said, you want to rehearse the script? No, he'd come in, pick up the script, walk in the air, and uh, and do his bit. And never seemed to have any problems of fluffs or boo-boos and so on. Yeah. Until they decided they would make him a target. <laughs> and he picked up the script one day and he says, in Taiwan today, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek said, he turned the page, it was all Chinese writing. <laughs> <laughs> he had to scramble in a hurry. Well, I was thinking of Lowell Thomas. You, you must be familiar with the famous story he was reading about a very large person who passed away and had to be buried in a piano crate. And I remember. And it's on YouTube if people want to check it out, I'm sure. But it's just infectious. It's 70 years later, and it's still funny. That's that's one of the joys of, of bringing back these memories. What I also wanted to say is I love the fact that I'm holding an actual book by you, my friend, that uh-huh. is illustrated with great text. This is not a computer program. This is not a disc. This is an actual book. And it reminds me that so many of the radio shows we talked about were based on novels or books, characters in written word that came to life. And I know George Lucas and others have said that uh, Flash Gordon and all those were very much inspirations for things like Star Wars. So I think it's just great that you, you're keeping this tradition alive of having us use our imagination. It's kind of interesting. Flash Gordon was a dud on radio and a huge success in the movies and on television. Buck Rogers, his counterpart, was just the opposite. Buck Rogers was was huge on radio 
and hardly got off the ground on television. Why? Who, huh. who knows? One, it's one of those secret sauce things. <laughs> we don't, we don't have <laughs> we it. Have, we have to mention the inner sanctum at one point. Well, let's do that. that. Yeah, one of the programs which I was not allowed to hear, but I would, uh, I would pretend I was asleep and then crawl over to the doorway and listen to my brother's radio in the next room. And I, they, they were my parents were afraid I'd get nightmares, which I probably would have. But Raymond Edward Johnson say, "Good evening, friends. Welcome to the inner sanctum." Well, that program originated because of a sound effect. Uh, Hyman Brown, who was a producer of many, many programs on radio, was in the sound room one time. He saw a door, and it needed oiling. It was very squeaky. And he said, you know, that would be a great way to open a program with a squeaking door. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how it started. It it was almost destroyed because one time he was wandering around in there, and the maintenance man came in with an oil can. He was getting ready to oil. He said, don't don't touch that door. Well, that brings up to to mind the idea of the Foley artist. You know, the sound effects men and women were key to making this real for the listeners. It's fascinating. You mentioned I interviewed Frankie Lane one time. Remember the great singer? Of the oh, yeah. Movie? And I was talking about Mule Train. I said, you had a, a whip sound in there. And I said, was that a real whip? He said, he laughed. He said, they tried a real whip, and it didn't sound like a whip. They took two two-by-fours and banged them together, and that was the whip. <laughs> And That's great. You could crinkle cellophane over uh, a microphone, and that would sound like a roaring fire. And uh, it, it, Patty it, Page, I mentioned her one time, but yep. I said there were two different dogs in in that song. How much is that doggy in the window? There was a yelper, and then there was a growler. And I said, was that the same person? She said, no, it was two different men. One one did the growling, and one did the yipping. Oh, man. What, what great stories. Absolutely great stories that abound. And there's just more to come. Your mission continues, my friend, right? I mean, this is so much fun. You do events, you do talks and so forth? Yes. I, I live in a retirement home here in South Carolina, and I occasionally put on a program and we'll just tell some of the old jokes and uh, reenact some of the shows. I Just last week, I reenacted uh, Ethel and Albert, which was a, a famous show about husband and wife similar to the Bickersons yeah. used to have arguments. I, ha- I have to tell you one personal story. You might get a kick out of uh, Mary Jane Higby was the star of When a Girl Marries for an incredible 18-year run. Just marvelous. She was writing a book, uh, the big broadcast, the same time I was doing my... my uh, hers was called Tune In Tomorrow, and I was working on the big broadcast, and uh, which was a list of cast lists and slogans and so on, models of the old radio shows. And she called me one day, and we were helping each other. We weren't rivals. She said, Bill, I need to know the name of the announcer on such and such a show. And I said, well, I don't have anything here. I got all my notes at home, and I, I keep them uh, in a box, on a big boot box under the bed. I call my wife and ask her. So she introduces herself. Hello, Mrs. Owen. I'm Mary Jane Higby, a friend of your husband's. I'm probably in trouble already. <laughs> and uh, she says, we're working on books together, and I need to know the name of an announcer on a certain program. She said, oh, Rosemary said, oh, I have no idea where he keeps it. She says, oh, I know. It's in a box under the bed. <laughs> I had a lot of explaining to do that night. <laughs> yes, I bet you did. As you were saying, dropping some of these names, I had the great honor of working with, on a stage here in the Boston area, recreations of old-time radio shows on stage with people like Parley Bear, Herb Ellis, and the great Arthur Anderson. Now, these were gentlemen in their very late years. They still got up there. It was The script would be in their hands, and they would come alive. They were suddenly oh. young again. It was just a delight to work with these people. 
did a lot of reenactment with those very people that you mentioned, Parley Bear and, and uh, Arthur Anderson and so on. That was one of the interesting things. When Frank Buxton and I first started on our project, though, the big broadcast, which is basically cast lists and so on, <clears throat> miscellaneous material, most of the people that we needed to interview were in their 80s. And so just in time, we caught on to it. It all began uh, accidentally, like the discovery of the x-rays and the scotch tape. Uh, I was the announcer on a program Frank was doing on ABC, and we used to argue about the, well, who played such and such a role? And one day I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the right answer. So I went to the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue, went in and said, could I have all your books on old-time radio? So she was gone. She came back and said, there aren't any. I said, what? There are no books about the history of old-time radio. There were individual ones by Walter Winchell, Bob Hope, and so on from their eyes. But we decided, well, it, somebody's got to do it. So we we started out to make a little pamphlet, which grew into a 300-page volume. But <laughs> fortunately, I'm not patting myself in the back. I'm just so thankful that we were able to interview all these people and get all this information. Right. Otherwise... I don't know how it ever would be found again. Well, you're the keeper of the flame, my friend. And the latest is called <laughs> Do You Remember the Visual History of Early Radio and TV by Bill Owen, available on Amazon. Bill is, a, as you heard, as you are hearing, he's got that wonderful announcer's golden pipe voice. You sound as good as ever. I'm so glad we reunited. And I know people will follow us uh, through on this podcast and check out your book and many more of your work. So thank you so much for joining me, my friend. Jordan, what a delight it always is. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good. <laughs>